So John chapter 8, um, and we got to start with something um, that's a little bit of a challenge just kind of right off the bat that needs a little bit uh, of explanation, and uh, who better to do that than me? So this is what my Bible says. If you've got a hard copy of the Scriptures, uh, there are these brackets that are right above the, the, the section. This is what it says. It says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. Oh, that's awkward because that's what we're actually teaching on this morning. So, what does uh, what does that mean? So, the New Testament, um, as we have it, uh, as we know, was originally written in Greek, and the first printed Greek New Testament that like came off a printing press. So this book didn't just like fall out of the sky with the leather cover and the little red thing in the middle there, uh, happened in 1516. So that means for 1500 years, the manuscripts of the biblical books were passed down with handwritten copies. Uh, they were preserved for us by faithful, hardworking copyists, and that's how we have uh, access to the actual words of the New Testament that the New Testament writers wrote with their very hands. Um, so now there's two kind of ways that we can approach this. One um, is like a really involved kind of textual criticism path where we drag out the entire process of how the, the gospels came together, how the scripture was put together, how what's called the canon of the word was put together. We could, we could do that. Um, and some of you would be thrilled probably a few of you would be really thrilled if we spent the rest of our time this morning doing that. Um, and then there's other people uh, where they're like, well, listen, it's obviously been in there a long time. Let's just skip it. And let's just kind of move forward. Um, and we can't really do that either. And here's why. Because some of you, you have people in your life like friends or coworkers or neighbors or your friend at the gym or other parents on your kid's youth sports team uh, where you've actually given them a copy of the scripture. And as they're reading it, they get to this section and they read that. And then they're going to ask you, hey, why is that in there? And you can't just say, uh, I don't know. Uh, let's just go to verse 12. We can skip it. I don't, I don't care. Um, we can't really do that. So I want to real quickly, because I, I can't do it in a super concise way, but I do, wanna, I do think it needs to be addressed. Uh, but let me just kind of tell you uh, why that's there. So the manuscript that John wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, doesn't exist anymore, meaning the original one that he wrote. But we do have some incredible early manuscripts, and we also have the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what happened over history is manuscripts have been copied over and over and over again. Pieces of them have survived, been put back together, and through a careful, spirit-led process, uh, the Gospels have been reconstructed. And in that process, of all the people who've studied these ancient manuscripts, most of them do not believe that this story was in the original gospel of John, meaning they don't believe that John uh, is the one who wrote this story. They believe that it was most likely written uh, by Luke, like stylistically, it seems to fit better with the way that Luke uh, writes. So you're asking, okay, well, how did it get there? Um, well, it could have been left out, um, but I believe, and many others do, that this narrative is a true account of a moment in the life of Jesus. Um, church fathers like Augustine and Jerome believe that this story is a narrative account and part of the Word of God. And, and here's what you can take to your neighbor and your, and your coworker who have questions about this. Um, 
even though a lot of people don't believe that John wrote this, there is a lot of evidence of the, from the church father that this was an eyewitness account of Jesus, and this was a part of the teachings of the, of the story of Jesus. Secondly, um, there is more material for Scripture than any other ancient text in history. So your professor who says, you know, you shouldn't trust this, but you can read the Iliad and the Odyssey, there's way more ancient material for this book than there is for that work. It doesn't mean that those works aren't true. It just means that there's way more uh, that's available for the, the scriptures. Uh, far more than anything else in antiquity, the Word of God, hands down, has more material. It also has overwhelming uh, unity. There are no comparable books that have been written over centuries by all manner of people from different walks of life, through different ages, looking through different lenses. And when it's put together, the Spirit of God uh, offers us one seamless, unified story. So the first 11 verses of, of John chapter 8 uh, do nothing to take away from the clarity of the message of this book. In fact, uh, the reason I think it is part of the narrative story of life of Jesus is because it actually amplifies the person of Jesus and the story uh, of who Jesus is. John Piper, who's a, a pastor and author, he writes about uh, that bracket there, and he says, the most remarkable point of the story is that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses, changes its appointed punishment, and reestablishes righteousness on the foundation of grace. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And he says, I don't doubt that this is why this story was preserved. It's an amazing story. Uh, and it really is. And we're going to um, ask God to help us as we look at it right now. Father, uh, I was reminded this morning um, through your word, God, that we uh, should not just be hearers, uh, but we should be doers. Because when we hear the word and we don't do anything with it or allow it to do anything to us, your word tells us that we're like a man who looks at the mirror and then immediately forgets what he looks like. And so, God, we, uh, we don't want that to be one of these moments. We don't want just another message to wash over us, just another sermon to wash over us. But, God, we're praying uh, that you, by your Spirit, God, would, would reveal things that are true about us, but more importantly, true about you. And, God, that you uh, would so impact us and that those things would so resonate with us because of your Spirit, um, God, that we, that we wouldn't... We couldn't help but do something with it. And God, that, that power um, and that outcome doesn't rest on me. It doesn't depend on me. I confess that. I know that. Um, and for that, we need your spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you teach us? And would you speak to us? And would you illuminate? And would you reveal? And God, would we see a true reflection in the mirror of your word? And I want to ask you, uh, if you would, just right now, just at this moment, just stop, pause, uh, and in the quiet and the stillness of just the next brief moment, um, just ask God to speak to you and ask that God that you'd be able to hear and that you, in fact, would not just be a hearer, but a doer. God, we love you and we trust you. And we, we ask that because of our time together, we have a deeper affection for you, Jesus. And we need you for that. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Have you, uh, any of you, ever been busted? 
like just flat out like busted, no excuse, like a traffic stop kind of thing. And it's like, I, I saw the sign. I've got no excuse. I know I'm doing 55 and the 35. It's not like there's nobody pregnant in the car. I got no excuse. I'm just like, I'm caught. Anybody, you just been flat out like busted before. So if you want to raise your hand, we'll just start over here on this side. We'll kind of work our way across. No. Have you ever busted somebody else? Like, have you ever caught somebody else? We, we, kinda, we like that position better than the, the other one, right? In fact, one of my favorite things about parenting early on when my kids were real young and they weren't like very slick, they're still not super slick, but they were not slick at all, is that I'd love to like know they're doing something like in the room and I would just be like right around the corner and I would just like pop out at them and be like, gotcha, right? So I'm, probably, I'm gonna pay for that later in counseling, but still it was fun for me to get to, to, get to do that. And we kind of like that because it's a little bit, I mean, it's weird, it's a little bit odd, but there's kind of like this power play thing. There's this power dynamic that we get to assume in that. It's like we get to kind of be the judge and the jury and the executioner, and we kind of like that. Well, what we're going to see in this story um, is Jesus, who takes a person who has no power, um, who's definitely caught, um, and he's going to do something that we should want to do when we are in a position um, where we're like that, and that he is going to give gentle correction. Jesus gives gentle, gentle correction because it's the better way uh, to live. Uh, one of the things I love about the Bible uh, is uh, even though it is certainly an ancient text, it's incredibly relevant and practical for us today. I think a lot of times the, the misconception about the scriptures, that's an old book for an old time filled with uh, something that doesn't apply anymore today. But the Bible is incredibly relevant and practical for us today, especially in, in terms of what we're talking about here now. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom writer says in verse 25 or chapter 25, verse 15, through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. What the wisdom writer there is saying is that gentle correction is actually more effective. You've known this if you've experienced harsh correction. How, how easily uh, did you receive that? How effective was that if you were the one who gave that harsh correction? But the gentle correction, if you've experienced that, that actually has made more of an impact in your life. And if you're the one who gives that gentle correction, it actually feels better to give that. Um, in Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So uh, not only is it more effective, but the Scripture says it's actually more authentic. It's more realistic. It's more real. It's more genuine to restore gen gently. And what we see in the life of Jesus is this authentic and gentle correction. And this is the normal way that Jesus responds to sinners. Jesus, uh, he combines perfect compassion and perfect justice. He's perfect in his grace and perfect in, in truth. And the culture that he's in, and really even still the culture today, does not operate with that kind of combination because the culture either uh, wants uh, you to be completely compassionate, meaning you just let someone live their life however they want without any question, without any boundaries, 
or it will exact punishment. It, it, it's kind of a, a trap. It, it's like this. Like the culture will even either say to you, well, you just do you. You just live your truth. You just live the way that you want to live. But at the same time, they'll actually use your lifestyle against you to condemn you. And so Jesus kind of enters in and offers another way where there's compassion and justice, grace and truth, and we're going to see the beauty of the one who can live that out in a really dynamic way. As we look at the story, I want you to see all the characters that we have here. Uh, There's Jesus, of course. He's front and center where he should be. Uh, But then you have the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were these religious leaders, uh, and they were a people who would talk about how to live the law. How does the law of Moses, how, how does that actually get lived? down. And then there were these scribes or scholars, uh, and, and they were interested in how do you interpret the law. Uh, and then in this scene, there are these students. And these students in particular, they wanted to know, how does Jesus understand the law? So that's what's happening in this kind of teaching moment. Those are the people. And then there's this massive interruption uh, of a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And they drag her from wherever she was, in whatever condition she was in, straight to Jesus, who's in the middle of teaching. We don't know what he's teaching on, um, but they stop him right in the middle. He's got this big crowd of people. She's thrown right into the midst. And the thing about Jesus is he doesn't say, guys, obviously I'm busy. Clearly you can see I'm doing something here. I'm like right in the middle of making a point in my teaching He doesn't take the whole scene off to the side, doesn't call time out and say, hey, listen, I've got to deal with this. I'll be right back to the lesson with everybody. Instead, right in the middle of the teaching session, he takes this mess and he makes it the message. Because Jesus fundamentally believes how he responds to this woman who is caught in sin is the message. He believes how he deals with sinners is at the core of, of his message. And for myself as a, as a pastor, as a leader in a church, my greatest messages will not be the ones that I communicate from a spot right here, but they'll be in how I respond to sinners, how I respond to someone who's in shame, how do I respond to someone who's broken, how do I move towards those that everybody else moves away from. Those will be the messages that matter in my life and in your life. And Jesus feels this moment is just as important as what he has to teach on. In John chapter 8, in our sections here in verse 4 and 5, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're they're trying to test Jesus, and we see this in the Gospels. And here's what they say. They say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it, it commands us to stone such a woman, to execute her, to kill her. So what do you say? It's a blatant test. They're Hearkening back to the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, where it says that that woman should be executed, she should be killed for being caught in adultery. And here in this moment, you've got the law of Moses, but you also have the Roman law. You you couldn't just kill someone. It's why later on we're going to see that they have to take Jesus to the Roman authorities because you couldn't just kill somebody, uh, and and a Jew couldn't kill a Jew. So you've got the law of Moses and the law of Rome, and they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to see, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to side with Caesar's law, or is he going to side with the law of Moses? But that's really not even the point. 
Because what the scribes and the Pharisees are ultimately trying to do is they're trying to take away the authority of Jesus. As we've looked through John, that's what we've been confronted with. That's what John is trying to put forward is just the authority of Jesus to say the things that he says and to act the way that he acts and to say the things about himself that he says. So people, uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they want to stop the authority of Jesus so people stop following him. Because when the Pharisees are teaching, they're teaching with the authority of the law of Moses. But when Jesus is preaching and teaching and doing ministry and going through life, he's bringing grace and he's bringing truth. And so that there's people who are, are, are sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, people who would never make it into the temple to hear from the Pharisees are now following Jesus around and they want to stop that. What the Pharisees wanted more than executing this woman is they wanted to execute the authority of Jesus. They wanted to execute his influence. They're trying to kill this movement of followers of Jesus. And really, they're off base on the law because what the law actually says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, or excuse me, yes, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. So there's something kind of already going on here because the man's nowhere to be found. It's just the woman. And with adultery, it takes two to tango. So there's something that's wrong. There's something that's off here. But verse 6, John really kind of clears it all up for us because he, may, he tell, very explicitly, he tells us what their motives are. He says, they said this to test him so that they might have some kind of charge to bring against him. They're, they're using her. They're using the law to get rid of this troublemaker, Jesus. And what Jesus is going to do like Piper says, he's going to reestablish righteousness. He's going to reestablish rightness. And he's going to do it on the foundation of grace, this unmerited and unearned favor of God. And really throughout the gospel, Jesus has these kind of consistent showdowns with these religious leaders, these Pharisees. And in effect, what he's doing is he's pushing against their view of the law and what the law actually is. And, and he's trying to get them to the place where they will, will, will see this. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, the law is fulfilled with uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so in verse 7, you know, there's this kind of crescendo moment. It's, just, it's more like this hinge point moment in the, in the narrative, in the story, in the argument. They, they, they bring their case, they bring their woman, they bring their so-called evidence, and they say, well, what are you going to do about it? And I love how Jesus responds. He says, let him, in verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And I love, the move, I love the move. I love the, like, the Jesus bending down and stooping down and now drawing in the sand. It's just cold. Like, that's a cold move. I love it. Because they're expecting this big gotcha, and then he just throws this on there, and then he starts to bend down and write. And we don't know what he's writing. We don't know what's happening in the sand there. There's lots of scholars have lots of different thoughts. Some people think he's maybe drawing a line in the sand. That's kind of common in that culture at that time and in that part of the world. Uh, some people think he might be writing different scriptures scriptures uh, that more aptly apply to the situation or more aptly apply to the Pharisees. Uh, one person I read, and this one's actually my favorite, uh, that he's actually writing the names of uh, women that these Pharisees and scribes had like had affairs with. 
Yeah, that one's like scandalous. I like that one. Um, we don't know exactly what he's writing there. And, and Jesus is not trying to kind of reestablish a, a, a basis for how judges and uh, you know, executioners have to be sinless because uh, that's not really what he's trying to clarify there. What he's trying to show and what he does show, uh, he exposes their own misuse of the law, which is why they all have to walk away. The point is not that judges and executioners must be sinless. The point is that righteousness and justice should be founded on a gracious spirit. And if it's not, then you get hypocrisy and the heartlessness of the Pharisees. And that's really the point throughout the gospel, not just here. They can't throw stones because Jesus has taken away their moral authority to throw stones. And then the end of the story is beautiful. They're all gone. Jesus ends and he says to the woman, he says, where are they? Are they still here? And she says, no, sir. You ever notice how you get super polite when you're like in trouble, like with authority? No, sir. Yes, sir. Right? And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. The order is important there. Just don't think that words are just kind of written in any happenstance. But they're important because he says, neither do I condemn you. Uh, and he's not saying Neither do I condemn you, so it doesn't matter if you commit adultery. Don't get that. Don't read that into the story. He, he's saying, again, I'm reestablishing righteousness, rightness in your life and for the Pharisees, if they'll have it, on the basis of an experience of grace. Don't commit adultery anymore is clearly part of the discourse there. Not mainly because you fear stoning, not mainly because you fear punishment, but because you have met God. Leave your life of sin because you've been rescued by grace. There's three things, real quick, I want to look at that we see from characters in this story. Um, and there's three things that we're going to see uh, when you encounter grace and truth in the person of Jesus. The, the, the first thing when I look at Jesus and when we encounter grace and truth um, you see that boundaries are blown up and dividing walls are dismissed. Boundaries are blown up, dividing walls are dismissed. In every place where grace and truth are operating in love, like the person of Jesus, you see these dividing walls that are blown up. Now look at who's here. You've got the Pharisees whose very title and very way of living and very way of being communicates that they're set apart. They're set apart by their self-righteousness. And then you have this woman who's set apart by her sinfulness. So there's clear and obvious division here and boundaries and dividing walls. Now, you can't dismiss the fact that this, that this is a woman that's brought into the presence of a rabbi, this Jewish teacher. And this might not make a, a uh, land for us here, but in this day, uh, just having a woman that's brought into the presence of this teacher in this critical kind of teaching moment, there's a lot that's scandalous about this here. Let me, let me kind of give you some context for the culture of that day. Uh, there was a regular prayer that rabbis would pray uh, and that rabbis would teach to young Jewish men who were learning the Torah, the law, and, and they had this benediction. They would say, three things in this prayer every day. They would, they would say these three things. They'd say, blessed be he who did not make me a Gentile. So read non-Jew. Blessed be he who did not make me a Gentile. 
Blessed be he who did not make me a slave. And then the last thing that they would pray every day, they'd say, is blessed be he who did not make me a woman. I'm not saying I pray this. I'm just saying this is the thing they pray, okay? So when a woman is brought in, it's already scandalous, but this is not just any woman. This is a woman who is a sinful woman, a woman who's caught in adultery. It's, it's shocking. But there's one thing about Jesus, of, there's many brilliant things. This, there's just one of those things, um, is how with Jesus, women seem to take a priority in his ministry life. If you, if you look at the life of Jesus, you see that there's women who are around him and disciples all the time. Some of the women were helping to fund the, the ministry of Jesus. Um, it's women, primarily, we find at the foot of the cross. It's a woman who's the first person to whom the risen Christ reveals himself. Over and over again, women have a priority in the gospel. So there's this cultural kind of push against uh, women, but, but Jesus uh, seems to be tearing down these boundaries that the society has built up. And the, just the, the obvious takeaway for us is that when we are people who walk in love and we walk in grace and truth, we can break down those dividing walls and blow up those boundaries as well. Because we do. We live in a culture that's very much us and them. We live in a culture that's an otherness. And it's not just out there. Unfortunately, it's inside the walls of the church as well. But Jesus comes and his message is radical good news. Because when Jesus is present, the dividing walls are broken down. When grace and truth operate in love, reconciliation happens. So the first thing we see with Jesus who operates in grace and truth and love is that these dividing walls are diminished, boundaries are, are blown up. And now we see the Pharisees. So what happens when they encounter grace and truth? Hypocrisy is halted. Hypocrisy is halted when, when the Pharisees encounter grace and truth. So what happens so often in the life uh, of Jesus is that people, primarily the Pharisees, would bring like these kind of like case studies to Jesus. And they would kind of throw people and they would throw these questions and kind of throw these things in front of Jesus, you know, and they'd ask him things like, well, what do you think about divorce? Or who is my neighbor? Or what would you do with this person? Or what would you do in this scenario? And most of the time, they're just trying to trap Jesus. They're just trying to kind of get him uh, to say something that would kind of trap him. But what Jesus does all of the time is he takes this finger that they're pointing and he kind of turns it back on themselves. Um, there's a book uh, called Love Walked Among Us, which is a great text to read. It's written by a guy named Paul Miller. And he writes about this story in one of the chapters. And when he's writing about this story, he introduces something called beam research. Uh, and it's taken from Matthew chapter 6. And in that place, that's where Jesus teaches. He says, why don't you deal with the log or the beam in your own eye uh, before you deal with the speck in your neighbor's eye? So Jesus paints this really cool picture where he's talking about like, you know, you're going after somebody else's problem. You're going after somebody's else's issue, and you see it as a forest, uh, but really, you're the one with the log in your eye, and it's a speck in there. So it, it, it's, it's, it's a brilliant concept. But this, listen to what Paul Miller says about that. He says, Jesus simplifies a complex situation by encouraging self-reflective repentance. 
Self-reflective repentance. He did not simplify the situation as our culture does by saying that adultery is okay because it feels good. Adultery is fine. It's what you want to do. Just do you. Live your life. Whatever makes you feel good. He does, Jesus doesn't do that. He affirms God's rule. You should not commit adultery when he tells her, sin no more. The law itself was not corrupt. The corruption was in the accuser's hearts. It's in their self-righteousness. So the very simple question for us as we consider the Pharisees, we consider their posture, is who are we pointing fingers at? Who, who are you holding up a stone against? Who in your life are you, you're like locked and loaded, stone ready to hurl? Your boss, if my boss would just change. Your spouse, that's probably the most common one, right? If they would just stop or if they would just start or if, if they would just, right? If they would just change and you've got a stone against your, your spouse, what bugs you in other people? You see, many of us hunt down the sins in others which we gladly shelter in ourselves. We're quick, uh, quick to point out the sins in others, but we shelter the same thing in ourselves. I easily point out things in others, but I shelter it myself. The only way to be honest without being judgmental to love with grace and truth is not by learning a principle, but by going through a process where you reflect on how do I do the same thing? I don't get, do a ton of marriage counseling, um, and this next reason, uh, you're going to see why. Uh, but, but when I do, I like to sit with couples, and I ask them a very simple question uh, and a kind of an exercise that they should do with one another. Uh, I just encourage them and say, listen, you should just uh, ask your spouse, what is it like to be married to me? And then stop talking. Like, just listen there at that moment. What is it like to be married to me? What's it feel like? What's it experience like? What's the impact that it has on you being married to me? You can go to Liberty Market today and talk about that. It'll be a lot of fun. You'll have a great afternoon. You will not be so quick to condemn when you are consistently seeing your own sin. Somebody asked me, why do you think the, the older men go away first in the story? And I think it's because as life goes on, uh, you've seen more and more of your own sinfulness. And you're more and more aware of it. You're more and more humbled by it. Jesus in his holiness exposes our sin and he exposes the accusers. He disturbs the comfortable and he comforts the disturbed. Now here's the really the rub in this, and this is going to get pretty practical here in a second. Because if you're listening to this, there's some of you in the room that this is really just like grinding on you because you're like, well, so does that mean I can never tell anybody that they're wrong? Because some of you, like either online or in the room, that's like, that's your thing. You like to tell people that they're wrong. It's like a hobby for you. You're like, well, so what? I can't ever tell anybody that they're wrong. And I don't think that's what's happening here because Jesus Spend his whole ministry pointing out things that are wrong at people. So it doesn't mean that you don't tell people they're wrong. It means that we can do it without judging. It means that we can point out like sin, we can call out sin without judging. 
You judge someone when you assess their position, but you dismiss them as a person. When I judge your position, I judge the thing that you've done or the way that you think or the way that you act or the way that you are. I judge that and I dismiss you as a person. I dehumanize you. I've read this story countless times. I've preached this message a couple times. Um, but I, when I read it now, especially the last couple of years, uh, as my girls are getting older, I, I've started to look at that story through the lens of, um, if that woman was my daughter, how would I want her treated? And it's completely changed the way that I see that woman who's caught. Because, there, yes, she's guilty, she's caught, she deserves what the Pharisees say, but how would I want her treated if she was my daughter? And I, I think that's the way that Jesus is approaching this situation. Listen to what the Bible says about Jesus. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. For some of you, that's kind of a newsflash. Because you feel like that's what God's really all about. Like that's his whole MO. That's his whole motive. That's his whole thing. But, but it says here, that's not why he sent his son to the world, but in order that the world might actually be saved through him. Jesus never denies that there should be punishment. He doesn't defend her actions, but he disqualifies the executioner. The Apostle Paul in Romans would write in Romans chapter 8, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation means lasting judgment. So for those who are in Christ, there's no lasting judgment. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34, Who will bring any charge against them who God has chosen? Those who are God's children, those who are God's people, who can bring any charge against them? Because it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Who? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Not condemning does not mean not telling the truth. It's about casting a person off after you tell them the truth. It's what you do after you tell someone the truth that determines whether or not you are condemning or judging them. Because after telling us the truth, what does Jesus do? He brings us close. He brings us near. He tells us the truth about our sin, tells us the truth about who we are, tells us the truth about who he is, and then brings us close as sons and daughters, friends. He, judging reflects the ignorance of our own sinfulness. When Jesus talks about the speck in your neighbor's eye and the beam in your own, he's getting at hypocrisy. But I think he's also getting at more. I think he's confronting us for failing to grapple with our own sinfulness. Because Jesus doesn't say, if there is a beam in your own eye, he's saying it's there. Uh, John Owen says, the seed of every sin is in every heart. There's a doctrine of total depravity. Romans 3 would say, all have sinned. It's in all of us. But the good news is that God justifies the ungodly. It's good news. And it means that the next time you think that you see someone who's living a life unworthy of mercy, realize, yeah, you're right. That's why it's called mercy. Because the gospel isn't for the less than good who try hard to get better. It's for the shattered souls who know they're not good and they stop pretending that they were. So when I'm talking to someone in sin or in error, 
I should be painfully aware that I'm infected with the same sinful stuff that they are and that I received from Jesus mercy. So it changes my tone. It changes my approach. So lastly, we've seen that with the truth and grace of Jesus, that dividing walls are dismissed, hypocrisy is halted. And then lastly, in this, in this woman, we see that sin is surrendered. What captivates me about Jesus' response to her is the order of what he said. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And usually we would reverse that. We'd say, uh, we'd say if you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. But he was telling her to change, not in order to be accepted, but to change because he had already accepted her. You see, religion usually tells you that change comes first. Get yourself in order first. Do the right thing first, and then acceptance will follow. But the gospel reverses those things. It tells us that change comes from acceptance, not for it. You see, Jesus knew that she'd never have the ability to break free of the brokenness that led her to adultery until she felt the love of God that was better than what she had sought in the adultery. This is super important. God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin, not the reward for having liberated ourselves. Can I say that again? God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin, not the reward for having liberated ourselves. Salvation is a gift given to undeserving people like this woman, and that's what lifts them up out of the captivity of their sin. Every time we see Jesus full of grace and truth, here's what happened. He, he has people all around him that are holding on to things that lead to death and destruction, and he holds his hands out and he says, I would love to take that from you and replace it with real life. But when my kids have something dangerous and I see it, I want to take that from it. My son, um, when he was younger, just a few years younger, he still loves to play with Legos, but when he was real little, just starting to play with Legos, he would sit on the floor building something, and he would have his mouth full of Legos. And so he's like chewing on all these plastic pieces, drooling all over himself, drooling all over the stuff, and I would have to go up to him and say, hey, get that out of your mouth. Give me that. And he'd get up, and he'd run, and I'd have to chase him with that stuff in his mouth. It was like, you're going to choke. That's going to kill you. That's not good. And I'd have to pin him down and scoop out slobbery pieces. Now, uh, he still kind of does it, but like all I have to do now is just say, hey, sigh, and be done. Or I just hold up my hand. He'll go spit it into my hand, right? The Bible says there's no condemnation in Christ, but it does not say there's no correction. Jesus is still teaching and he's still saying sin no more. He will not sit by and allow you to live a life walking away from him. He, he, he still says sin no more. And at the, at the same time, he says no one condemns you. And so to this woman, he doesn't pull back. He says, go and leave your life of sin. He never says she didn't sin. He labels sin. He says, what you're doing is wrong. He just doesn't look the other way and let it slide. He's calling it what it is, and he's calling her to obedience. And he's saying, I, I want to take that from you. It's killing you. It's destroying you. It's sin. And then, and then he says, I want you to look around. I want to take that from you, and then I want you to look around. There's no stones. There's nobody here to throw a stone on you. This is the beauty of Jesus. 
He's confronting sin and he's confronting condemnation at the same time. And so Christian, the thoughts that condemn you, look at the gospel, take those captive and see that there is no condemnation. There is no one who can hold up stones against you if you are in Christ Jesus. And here's, what, here's why Jesus can say that. Because what Jesus is actually saying, what he's saying to the woman, what he's saying to you, what he's saying to me, is like there's no condemnation because I'm going to be condemned for you. What Jesus is saying is he says, sin no more. And yes, there should be an execution, but I'll be the one who's executed. What Jesus is saying, there should be beatings. There should be scourging. There should be flesh that is ripped from bone. There should be mocking and there should be bleeding and you should be spit on and there should be spikes that are driven into your flesh and there should be spears that pierce your side and there should be gasping for breath and suffocation and exhaustion and humiliation. There should be all of those things. There should be a crown of thorns that is pressed into your skull but it'll be pressed into mine. And all of those things will fall on me. There is no condemnation in Christ because he is condemned for you. And Jesus has disqualified all of your executioners because he was executed on your behalf. And so the question this morning is this. Will you surrender the sin that is killing you? Will you listen to Jesus when he gives you that gracious invitation? Go, leave that life of sin. Go and sin no more. His hands are out. That thing that's killing you, that's leading to death, that's leading to destruction. I'd love to take that from you. I've already paid for it. I'd love to take that from you and replace it with life, with real life. And church, the question for us as a, as a church, as a group together, is like, what if we lived this out? Meaning, like, what if we lived out um, in us what's inside of Jesus? This grace and truth. Telling the world the truth about sin. Telling the world the truth about what is killing them and stealing light for them. And offering grace in love. What would we see in the town of Gilbert? What would we see in Mesa and Tempe? Scottsdale, Chandler, and Phoenix, what would we see if we were a people who lived this out day in and day out? I think we'd see radical transformation. I think we'd see the name of Jesus lifted high in our state and beyond. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for the story. Thank you for this encounter that we see in Jesus. And thank you for what it reminds us of here this morning. And God, what it, what it brings us close to once again. It brings us close to you, Jesus, where we see perfectly truth and grace bound up together and exercised in love. And God, I'm, I'm praying for um, people in the room or listening online who feel... Um, Maybe like that woman caught, maybe that's the character in the story that they most clearly resonate with. There could be people who they're not yet a believer, not yet a follower of you, Jesus, but they feel very much uh, like a slave to sin, uh, a slave to shame, guilty. And God, I just pray right now that that particular person would hear from you um, exactly what that woman 
heard from you, Jesus. I think the thing that you said um, so long ago, you're still saying right now. Neither do I condemn you and leave that life of sin. God, that invitation of grace is just as true and just as loud, just as clear, just as available right now as it was then. And so, God, I pray that those people would hear it. I, God, I think of the Christian who um, just has sin piled up in their life, and they've tried to kind of tuck it in the nooks and the crannies and the corners of their life. And, God, they're just so afraid of what will happen when it's exposed. They also feel like that woman, except they don't want that moment where they're pulled out in front and everything's just out in the open. And God, I just pray by your kindness, God, right now, by your kindness, that you would speak to your son or your daughter, um, God, that there would be confession, that there would be repentance, that there would be a turning, God, that they would hear from you. There's no condemnation for my kids, for my son, for my daughter. And God, again, that gracious invitation to leave a life of sin. God, I pray for the person who's just caught up in this religiosity. And God, they're holding up stones and they've been holding them up for a long time. And God, they're weary and weak and worn out and worn down because they're constantly lifting up stones, constantly trying to put themselves in a position to execute judgment. And God, I just pray that they right now would hear your gracious invitation to just put the stones down. And then humility, God, that they'd drop the stones and they'd find rest in you. God, people who are holding on to anger and people who are holding on to bitterness and people who are holding on to the resentfulness, God, that this morning they'd just let it go. God, most of all, I just, uh, I pray that we as a church would learn to walk in your ways. God, we'd learn to live out grace and truth and love and humility. Help us with that. In your name we pray. Amen.